0: Delighted that you're here. We have a good number present. We appreciate the presence of everyone. If you're visiting with us, we're glad that you've come and hope you can come back. We're going to continue our studies in the evenings on the conversions. We'll talk about the conversion of Cornelius this evening, at, this afternoon rather, at 530. And if you will read Acts chapter 10, maybe even Acts 11, maybe even Acts 15, at least the first seven or eight verses of Acts 15 will help for our study uh, this afternoon at 5 30. It's good to see John Merritt out. He was here a couple of weeks ago. If you didn't catch him then, he's been out for some time, and we're glad he's doing well enough to be able to be out with us. We're in a series on Sunday mornings on worldliness, and we have begun on the standpoint from the standpoint that worldliness has always been a problem in the Old and New Testament times. We don't go far into the Old Testament until we see a mixed multitude traveling along with the people. And that caused problems. It was a thorn in their side. When we come to the New Testament times, there was, for example, the case of the fornicator at Corinth. That was a problem for them. So the churches, in, I mean, the people of God in the Old Testament, churches in the New Testament had problems with worldliness. We continue to battle the problem as a church and as individuals. We have six lessons that we're dealing with. We've talked about the question, or our question has been, how do I know about worldliness? And after we talked about understanding worldliness, we raised the question, how do I know what not to say? And how do I know next dancing is wrong? And today we want to raise the question, how do we know that social drinking is a sin? How do we know that? I want to remind you of the how we determine right from wrong. We must accept that there is an objective standard. And if we don't accept there is an objective standard, then everyone decides for himself what's right. Everybody just decides what is in their own mind is true, like in the days of the judges. If there is not an objective standard, there is an objective standard, the revealed will of God. If there is an objective standard, then we must verify what we hear by that standard. So whatever preachers may tell us, and elders and parents, professors and teachers and classmates tell us, we must compare that by the revealed standard, that objective standard And then having verified it, then we must accept what we find in that standard, indeed as being the Word of God and the truth. So our question today is, how do we know that social drinking is a sin? Drinking is a problem that is as old as man himself. We don't go very far into the Old Testament until we see the case of Noah getting drunk, Genesis 9. And that might be surprising to the first person or the person who's first reading their Bibles And they are just introduced to Bible stories to find out what a great Bible character we have, and he got drunk in Genesis 9. Well, we go a little bit later in Genesis 19, not far in our study, in Genesis we come to another case, and that is Lot got drunk, his daughters got him drunk, and they committed incest with him. And so again we have a case of drunkenness. We all know that drunkenness is a sin, but what about the case of social drinking? What about the case of drinking in moderation, or as some, and I put in quotations, call it responsible drinking? What about an occasional beer or an occasional wine? Is that forbidden by the scriptures, or is that okay, as some have sought to justify I won't bore you with a lot of statistics, but I've refreshed some of the statistics I've used for several years with the ones that are at least current as of yesterday on the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. I just want to suggest to you how prevalent drinking is, which may suggest to us something of the temptation that comes to not only our young people, but all people. For example, they talk about the prevalence of drinking in the United States. According to a 2015 national survey, 86.4% of people ages 18 and older reported they have drank some time in their life, 70% reported they've drank in the last year, and 56% say they have done so in the last month. But that means that nearly 90% of the people say we have, we've taken alcohol at some point in our life. More than half of the people say in the last month I have partaken of alcohol. Now you think about that when half of the people that you associate with in society are drinking. And that nearly 90% of them have done that at some point in their life. Furthermore, underage drinking, that 33.1% of 15-year-olds reported they have had at least one drink in their lives. That's underage drinking. Go a little bit further. What about college students? According to the 2015 survey, 58% of full-time college students ages 18 to 22 have, have drank within the last 12 months or so, or within the last month, that is. And so we talk about the prevalence of drinking. And therefore, there is a temptation among those who are college students, not only college students, but other adults as well, that there is a temptation. Here's the point of our lesson today. I want to fast forward and get to the conclusion, and then we're going to come back at how we got to that conclusion. Our conclusion is going to be that social drinking is a sinful act. That is, drinking in moderation, not excessive. We're not talking about becoming stone drunk. But what we're talking about, is there anything wrong with drinking an occasional beer, drinking some occasional wine, or partaking of some kind of alcoholic drink? Is there anything wrong with that principle, as long as I don't get drunk? And our proposition that we're going to follow is that social drinking is a sinful act, and our question is, how do we know? And so let's begin. Let's start with this. Social drinking itself is a form of drunkenness. As the Bible uses that term. And let's see if that's not the case. Let's start with this. Let's establish the fact the Bible condemns drunkenness. Let's go to Ephesians 5 and in verse 19. Here is a direct command of God. Be not drunk with wine. The text says don't be drunk. and Don't be drunk with wine. And so here is a prohibition against drunkenness. You recall Galatians 5, that catalog of sins, the works of the flesh are manifest which are these. And he mentions drunkenness. Well, we all understand what drunkenness is. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of heaven? And then he enumerates some of the things that the Corinthians had been guilty of, and one of those would be drunkenness. And those who do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's pretty simple. Drunkenness is condemned. But I want us to see that social drinking is a form of drunkenness. This is vines. You are familiar with vines. Many of you have vines in your home. Vines is a lexicographer. He's also a commentator. He wrote commentaries, but he's a lexicographer, and he defines words. Here is what Vines says for the word drunk. It means to make drunk or to grow drunk, an inceptive verb, marking the process or the state expressed, to become intoxicated. So yes, the word can mean to be fully intoxicated, As we think of being drunk, but it also includes the process of the state, he says. Now, you put that with some other things we're going to see in just a moment. Let's open our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I want you to see a contrast. The Bible often uses contrast, talks about love and hate, for example. John is a writer of contrast. Though we're going to Paul's writing, I want to remind you, John is a writer of contrast. What do we mean by contrast? Well, John will talk about love and hate, and you either love or you hate. There is no in-between ground. You're either with God or you're with Satan. There is no in-between ground. Well, the Bible often makes contrast, and in that context, you're either one or the other. Let's see what this contrast is. There is a contrast between being sober and being drunk. Now, let's get ahead of ourselves and let's define sober. Vines defines the word sober to be free from the influence of intoxicants. Not just being intoxicated, being free from intoxication, but being free from the influence of intoxicants. That's what sober means. Now, sober is in contrast to drunkenness in this context. Let's see. Then he talks about, let us not, this is really not talking in this context of drinking alcohol within itself, but let's see what he talks about. Therefore, let us sleep as, uh, not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober, For those who sleep are sleeping in the night, and those who get drunk are drunk at the night. Those who are not sober are drunk. But, verse 8, let those of us who are of the day be sober. But what? But in contrast to the drunkenness. So if I'm not free from the influence of intoxicants, I'm partaking, I haven't gotten stone drunk yet, but I'm partaking of the intoxicants, I'm no longer sober, I am at least, in this definition, as it's used in this context according to vines, form of drunkenness. But let's notice another thing. I'm asking the question, how do we know that social drinking is a sin? I know it's a sin because it is strong drink. Now the Bible warns about strong drink abundantly. Let's just get a sampling of that. Proverbs 20 and in verse 1. Proverbs 20 and verse 1 warns about drinking strong drink. Your translation may use another term. It may Use this expression, as the New King James says, wine is a mocker, intoxicating drink arouses brawling. Strong drink is raging, the King James says. So there's a numerous passages, and we won't notice them all in the Old Testament, particularly Proverbs, that warns about strong drink. Well, here's a passage in Luke chapter 1 and verse 15, speaking of John, that he was neither have uh, wine nor strong drink, the text says. Forbidden of him. He was not to have wine or strong drink. So the Bible would forbid strong drink. And I think any, even those who would uh, encourage social drinking, Christians who would encourage social drinking, would say, We don't need to engage in strong drink. We'll not participate in strong drink. But what I want to suggest to you is today's drinks are strong by comparison. Let's talk about Palestinian wines. It is well understood, and we can document that, and we will before it's through. The Palestinian wines were somewhere between 5 and 8 percent alcohol content. But as we look at the drinks of the day, when you talk about distilled liquors, they're 45 to 50 percent. That's strong by comparison. Malt liquors are 4 to 6 percent. If the Palestinian wines that had alcohol were strong drink, then certainly the malt liquors would be strong drink, and the wines 10 to 14 percent. So consequently, those are strong by comparison. Now let's look at some quotations from some references about Bible wine. This is from Robert Stein. Robert Stein says the ancient wine, in ancient times, wine usually stored in large portions called amphorae. The wine would be used, it would be poured from the amphorae into large bowls called craters, where it was mixed with water. Important point. What is important for us to note is that wine drank was mixed with water. So it was mixed with water. We'll say more about the mixing with water in just a moment. What we're trying to get a picture of is what was strong drink in the context of ancient times, of Bible times. McLennan and Strong. Some of you may have that set of Encyclopedia McLennan and Strong. Those were biblical encyclopedias. Uh, mixed wine is often spoken in Scripture. that was a different kind. Sometimes it was mixed with water to take it down. Sometimes with milk, like in the Song of Solomon, chapter 5 and verse 1. Well let's go further, sometimes it was mixed with spices. This is from Everett Ferguson in Restoration Quarterly. When speaking of the ordinary drinking beverage, the writer simply said wine, for it was taken for granted that it was a mixture of water and wine. And We're gonna get some of the ratios of the mixtures here in just a second. The ISBE, that's International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. The proportion of water was large, only one-third or one-fourth of the total mixture being wine. Now. I'll give you a sampling of that in just a moment of how some of the ancient writers would talk about, some of the Greek writers would talk about the ratio in which their wine was mixed. Very little of it was strong drink, and so it was diluted down. We'll say more about diluting it in just a moment. Robert Stein, again, we've quoted him earlier, that drinking wine unmixed was looked upon as Scythian and a barbarian custom, and so to, drink the, to take the strong drink within itself without watering and diluting it down so that it wouldn't be intoxicating was looked upon as a barbarian custom. Now here's some of the ancient sources that I just mentioned. Here's some of the ancient sources that show that the ratio of water to wine seemed to vary, but it was always diluted at from 3 to 1, the larger number being the, the water. 3 to 1, 4 to 1, 2 to 1, 20 to 1, Homer would say, or, or Pliny the Elder said that it was 8 to 1. That doesn't mean they're contradictory, but they're talking about different occasions where the wine would be watered down. It would be diluted. The point we're trying to make is that today's drinks are strong by comparison. Now, remember the 5 to 8% comparison? This, again, is taken from the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. Beer has about 5% alcohol based upon 12 ounces of regular beer. The malt liquors have about 7%. The wine has about 12%. And the distilled spirits, such as vodka and whiskey, etc., have about 40%. So any one of those is strong by comparison to the Palestinian wines. And so our point is this, that social drinking, you drink a beer, you drink a glass of wine, you say, that's all I'm going to do, I'm going to drink a glass of wine. I'm going to drink a beer or two, that's all I'm going to do. That by comparison, that is tantamount to the strong drink, or stronger than the strong drink of biblical times. Let's go again. How do I know that social drinking is wrong? Because drinking alcohol is harmful. Now, it harms the body. How do I know it harms the body? It's alcohol. Alcohol is a poison. It's a narcotic. It's a drug. It does damage to the brain. I won't take the time to give the medical evidence of that, but we could document that as you could and do the research and find out the damage that is done. But I'm more interested in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let's go there. And let me footnote at this juncture, this same passage applies to the misuse of drugs, even the misuse, if you're abusing medical uh, drugs your doctor is giving you and you're abusing those, same principle applies. Same principle applies to smoking. We're not going to have a lesson on smoking. That's not part of our series, though we've done that before. The same principle. Same principle of smoking applies here. It's doing harm and damage to the body. What's wrong with damaging the body? Well, let's look at 1 Corinthians 6 19 and 20, it is sinful to harm the body. Why is that? Well, look at verses 19 and 20. This is in the context of fornication. I understand that. But here's a principle that is stated that the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and it is not ours. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, which you have from God, and you're you're, uh, you're not your own? You're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. You say, what's the point? The point in the context is there is damage and destruction that is done against the body. Verse 18, fornication destroys the body. We have no right to destroy the body because it is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are stewards of our bodies that belong to God. And so that's one of the reasons that indeed it's wrong. But I was driving through all of that to get to this point because this is where I want to spend our time. I want us to talk about how that drinking itself is condemned, and let's start with 1 Peter 4, 3. If you don't get any other text this morning, and if you have just now caught up with it and you say, oh, I've kind of missed about half of what you said, if you'll pay attention to this point, your time's going to be well spent. So let's open our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4 and in verse 3. This is an important text on this question. Peter is talking about how they had wasted their lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. In other words, when we were heathens, when we were pagans, we wasted our life doing the things Gentiles do. Like what, Peter? Well, he mentions this. Like walking in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Notice the one that is highlighted. Drinking parties. This is the new King James translation. Your translation may say drinkings, or it may use, if you have the King James, banqueting's. Banquetings is not talking about going to something that's a formal event that you call a banquet and where they're serving dinner and you went to this banquet and therefore that's what he's talking about. It's not talking about that. And that's why perhaps New King James changed that word. It's not because that was a mistranslation. That's what banquetings meant at the time of the translation. Banquetings, New King, or King James, drinking parties, New King James, drinkings, Darby's translations. Darby is a little more wooden like Young's Literal and American Standard meaning it's a little more literal than some of the other translations, but it means drinkings. This is R.C. Trench, who is Trench. He's not a commentator. He's again a lexicographer. He's one who defines it as an authority on words. Does that mean they're always right? But no, we're gonna look at compounding evidence. That's what I want us to see. So what does this word, potas, mean that is translated banquetings? What does it mean? It's condemning banquetings or drinking parties or drinking bouts. I need to know what that means. So what does it mean? Trent says it's a drinking bout, the banquet, not of necessity, excessive. He tells us that his professional opinion on this word, that the word itself means, drinkings, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's excessive drinking. That describes social drinking. Well, let's discount him for the moment. Maybe he's wrong about that. Let's see what Strong says. Strong says... That it means a drinking bout or carousal, banqueting. It means to imbibe or to drink. It comes from this root word. That means to imbibe or to drink. I mean, you probably have a copy of Strong's. If you have a Bible program, you probably have Strong's on the program. If you look your word up and find what the word means, it gives you a number. And it will tell you number 42, uh, uh, 4224 and tell you it comes from 4095. And 4095, that's just a, a reference where you can find what the word means. It means to imbibe or to drink. Let's go even further. The NET is one of those wooden translations. Calls it a drinking bout. And then there's a TN. If you have the uh, NET translation or you look it up on your phone, uh, many of you have that access. We'll go ahead and look it up on your phone if you want to right now. And you'll find a little TN. You hit the TN. That means translator's note. Here's what the translator's note says. According to BDAG. That's Bauer, Danker, Art, and Ginkrich. Bedeck said that the term means to refer to a social gathering in which wine is served. Hence, drinking parties. However, it refers to this collection of terms, or this, the association, that's what this word collocation means. It's association with other terms in the context that it suggests something less sophisticated and more along the lines of a wild and frenzied drinking bouts. So it included this drinking bouts, but he is saying that it means a drinking or it means a place where wine is imbibed. That's what it means. Well, let's go even further. Let's go to BDAG itself. Again, that's Walter Bauer that was later translated by uh, uh, Art and Ginkrich and then Ginkrich and Danker. That's how I got all the terms. That's why we call it BDAG. It's a big, long, convoluted title. But nonetheless, BDAG says it's a social gathering at which the wine was served. So it's a social gathering where wine is served. Now how does that not fit the context or the the concept of social drinking? And defining words are important. Let's go further. This is A.T. Robertson. Many have thought he was the greatest Greek scholar of the last century. Whether or not that's true, here's what he said. The old word for drink, potos means an old word for drinking, carousal. Here, only in the New Testament. What does he mean by that? This is the only place potos is used. Only place. You're not going to find it anywhere else in the New Testament. This is the only time it's used. And it seems too strange to find, in light of these words, it seems strange to find modern Christians justifying their personal liberty to drink and to carouse to say nothing of the prohibition law. In other words, he said, look at this word and it's condemning drinking, and how could you as a Christian justify drinking in light of that? Seems kind of strange, Robertson says. Nida said, drunkenness may be referred to as frequently getting drunk, Are constantly drinking too much, but in this type of context, a term for drinking, there's our word potas, must indicate the drinking of intoxicating liquors. Now why am I keep compounding those passages on 1 Peter 4.3? Because you could easily find, for example, let's just take the word solo, which is the word for psalm. You can find some authority somewhere that says inherent in that word is a mechanical instrument of music. Okay, I got that. But you can't compound that over and over and over and over and over and over over again. You can't do that. So here when we come to this principle, we can compound that definition over and over and over. That it has to do with drinking. It includes drinking. Now, does it include going further? Yes, but it also includes the drinking. Let's go to 1 Peter 5 and verse 8. If you don't remember anything else, remember 1 Peter 4, 3. We've got to grapple with that passage. 1 Peter 5 and in verse 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Let's focus on this word sober. And what the word sober. Again, Vines, as we've already noticed, says it means to be free from the influence of intoxicants, to be free from that influence of intoxicants. Strong's and, and Donegan's lexicon says it means to abstain. Now, if I'm drinking a beer, I'm not abstaining. If I'm drinking some wine, though I'm not getting drunk, I'm not abstaining. To be sober in this text means to be free from the influence and to abstain. And so the Bible does condemn the drinking. Let's briefly mention this, and then I want to get to some arguments that are made to justify this. It influences others. If you are a social drinker, and there are Christians who are, And you go out and you have an occasional beer, you have an occasional wine, you may even have it in your home and you have some friends in and you drink in front of them. You are the greatest advertisement to carry people to alcoholism and to drunkenness that there is. And you say, How so? It is the moderate social drinking that is the major cause of recruiting new drinkers. It is not your friend that is a drunk or an alcoholic that is going to the meetings trying to get off of his alcohol that has lost his job, has been arrested several times for DUI. That's not the person that's the great advertisement encouraging more people to drink. Nobody looks at the alcoholic and the drunk saying, you know what, I think I want to get started drinking. I think I'm going to get me some wine and drink like them. It is that social drinker that is the greatest encouragement toward that. Go to Matthew chapter 18. Could my example if I'm a social drinker, encourage someone to imbibe and to partake and make them think that, you know what, maybe I can drink a little bit and it'll never lead to that state of alcoholism. But then it ultimately does, and it has in many cases. In fact, every alcoholic started drinking occasionally. In Matthew 18, verses 6 and 7, what I want you to notice is the principle of causing another to sin. Jesus said, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, you say, well, I don't think I could ever cause someone to sin. They sin on their own. Well, they do sin on their own, that's true, but there is some responsibility. And you say, how do you know this? Read the text again. Whoever causes one of these little ones to sin, it would be better for him that a millstone were hung around his neck and that he would drown in the depths of the sea. That's what Jesus is talking about in the next verse, of offending somebody. It means to lead or to cause them to sin. Now, there are Christians who argue that Social drinking is justified, and here are some of the passages that they use, and so let's open our Bibles now to John chapter 2. One of the first ones is the case of Jesus turning water into wine. So let's turn to John chapter 2, if you will. This is the first miracle that Jesus performed. It was in Cana of Galilee. Early in his ministry, he comes to Cana. There was a wedding feast, John chapter 2. They were drinking, the text says, wine. The wine ran out. Jesus turned some water pots full of water and changed the water into wine. The point of it is that Jesus worked a miracle and gave evidence and proof, indeed, of who he claimed to be. But Jesus, the text says, was there and he made wine, the text says. Listen to this carefully. It is a fatal assumption. Let's forget about wine for a moment. Let's just talk about Bible terminology. Let's talk about biblical hermeneutics for a moment. It is a fatal thing to assume that words that we use in the 21st century and the words that are used in the Bible are always the same words. I want to say that again. What we're doing is we're taking a 21st definition of wine and putting it into the 1st century use of that term. Because in our society, when we talk about wine, we don't, we're not talking about the juice of the grape anymore. We usually are talking in our context about fermented wine. If I told you I'm going to go get some wine after a while and I'm going to drink it today, you would probably start and say, well, you just preached against it and you're going to go get wine. Because I wouldn't use the term to refer to the juice of the grape. But that's how it was used often in biblical times. I'm going to give you evidence of that. Now, that's a fatal assumption when we start taking modern words and put that in the ancient setting, put our definition in the ancient setting. So we are assuming by this that wine has to be intoxicating, it has to be alcoholic content. So first of all, there is no evidence that the wine here had alcoholic content. You say, how do you know? The word translated wine comes from this word oinos. You say, I know nothing about Greek. You don't have to. What you do know and need to know is that that word wine sometimes is used with reference to fermented wine with alcoholic content you say how do you know ephesians 5 be not drunk with wine that wine you could get drunk on i don't know much about drinking but i know this much you must have alcoholic content or you can't get drunk on it. so that had alcoholic content well we all agree with that but was the term ever used with reference to non-alcoholic content in other words unfermented wine Before it ferments. And yes it does. So let's go to Matthew chapter 9 and in verse 17. The parallel account is found in Mark 2. We're not going to go there. But let's talk about Matthew chapter 9. And I want to give a little explanation of Matthew chapter 9. And discuss with you a little bit of some previous thoughts I've had about that. And as I study more I'm learning that maybe I was wrong about Matthew 9. But either way we still come out at the same place. Jesus talks in Matthew 9 and verse 17 about... You don't put new wine into old wineskins, but you put new wine into new wineskins. I previously thought, as Barnes explains, that he's talking about the fermentation process, and have explained the text so, and the new wine would be unfermented grape juice that you put into the wineskin and it stretches with fermentation. That's what Barnes says this has reference to. But on further study, I think Barnes was wrong, and I think I was wrong about that. I think what he's talking about, and he's still talking about new wine, and that's what we're after, that new wine was the unfermented juice of the grape. The truth of the matter is that it, it's talking about preventing the idea of fermentation. If you put the new grape juice into the new wineskin or the old wineskin and completely sealed it, it, would either one of them would burst with the expansion of the gases. As it fermented. So what is he talking about? He's talking about how the old wine skins could very well easily be contaminated with with the fermentation and provoke new fermentation of the new grape juice. But putting the wine skin of the new wine into the new wine skin is talking about preventing fermentation. And I think that's a better explanation of the text. I would cite Chumley and Pope and their rep, and their commentaries as good evidence of that. But either way, both of those explanations simply as saying the new wine refers to unfermented juice of the grape. So let's get back to where I just footnoted, so I'm going to come back now to our main thought. That same word, onos, wine, is used with reference to unfermented, no alcoholic content. So let's go back to our text. The word in John 2 doesn't tell me anything about the alcoholic content, does it? It me show you an Old Testament time, place. In Isaiah 65, 8, talks about the new wine is found in the cluster while the juice was still in the cluster before it is plucked off of the vine. It's obviously not fermented. It was called wine. Well, the Bible sometimes uses the term wine and did use the term wine to have reference to the juice of the grape. Now, let's go back to our context. There's no evidence that it's fermented. The word wine doesn't mean that within itself. It could be. It can mean that, but there's, there's no Evidence that it means that in that context. If this passage justifies social drinking, it would justify excessive drinking. You say, how do you know? Let's go back to John chapter 2. Do you remember how much wine Jesus had made? There were six water pots, the text says. "Do you notice that in John 2? There were six water pots, verse 6, each containing 20 to 30 gallons apiece. That's 120 to 180 gallons. Jesus didn't make a gallon or two of wine, so each one could have a little sip of alcoholic content. If he made alcoholic content, he made 120 to 180 gallons of intoxicating beverage. If it encourages anything, it encourages excessive drinking. If it encourages social drinking. John 2 doesn't encourage that at all. Go to 1 Timothy five thirteen. Paul told Timothy, drink a little wine for thy stomach's sake. Again, it is assumed because we use the term wine to have reference to alcoholic content, that must mean what it is there. It's that same word, oinos. We've shown it can mean intoxicating beverage. It can mean the juice of the grape, even while it's still as must. Wine doesn't have to be fermented, there's no evidence that's what it means there. Evidence could be cited that there is medicinal value in drinking the pure juice of the grape far before it's fermented. But let's just assume, for argument's sake, that it is talking about alcoholic content. This was for medicinal purposes. The doctor may prescribe you medicine that has large alcoholic content, and you take that, and you kind of feel woozy. But that's exactly what needed to be done for your medicinal purpose. No one opposes that. That's not what we're talking about. And so, either way, on this text, it doesn't justify social drinking because that's not what he's telling Timothy to do. Take a little wine for your stomach's sake. He said it is not evident that it has reference to alcoholic content. Let's look at another text, 1 Timothy 3 and in verse 8. This is an often misunderstood text talking about the qualifications of deacons. They're not to be given to much wine. The assumption is that the deacon and and the elders to be given to no wine. The text says not to be given to wine, but the deacon is not to be given to much wine. And the assumption is that elders can't drink any, but deacons can drink a little. And that is, first of all, uh, what, the one who makes that kind of argument doesn't understand biblical hermeneutics. They don't understand how to interpret the text. Those phrases mean the same thing. First of all, it assumes that you can have a little bit, is what that assumption is. If that be the case, then a passage that forbids killing means you can beat them as long as you don't leave, he just leave them alive. Is that what that passage? No, it's forbidding killing. Well, same thing here. The idea is, if it is forbidding the excessive, doesn't mean I can have a little bit. It's forbidding the excessive. But the truth of the matter is, I won't go into all the explanation of how that's the case. But the the phrases mean the exact same thing. Where the elder is not to be given to wine, and the deacon is not to be given to much wine, they're saying the same thing. They neither are to be given to wine. Forbidding the excess does not justify a little. Now, here's one of the arguments that we haven't treated in a while. But it's quite frequently made, and that is the ancients had no way of preventing fermentation. Before the days of refrigeration, uh, you'd have the juice of the grape, and it's going to naturally ferment. And so they had no way of preserving it, they had no way of preventing fermentation. And consequently, if they drank wine at all, and it's obvious they did, so uh, even just take this word oh no, does it mean unfermented? It's not going to be unfermented very long, because if they keep it very long, it's going to ferment, and they drank fermented wine. Well, that's just absolutely not true. I'm citing two sources here Kyle Pope and some material he put together at the ECI conference, and, and William Patton's book on Bible wines. But there are four basic methods of preventing fermentation. Now, this may surprise you for the idea of the ancient times. There were four methods of preventing fermentation, Pliny the Elder, wrote about the suitable drink for all men was wine with strength reduced by the filter. Filtration was one of the ways of doing that. Plutarch said essentially the same thing, that he declared wine cleansed by a strainer has a strike of madness taken away. The Babylonian Talmud records debates about how the, the wine ought to be filtered that's just the beginning of the evidence could be cited that filtration was one of the means of doing that. Now we'll give some evidence of modern days of doing that. Another was that of boiling. Boiling it, bringing it to a boil, and then rehydrating it later at the time of drink. Was one of the ways of removing any possibility of fermentation. Aristotle wrote about the wines of Arcadia they were so thick they'd scrape them off of the wine skins and then would rehydrate them later, Aristotle would say. The Mishnah, the Jewish records record debates that the Jews had about boiled or unboiled wine to be used for a heave offering. Which one should be used? Would just suggest they boiled the wines. The Jewish Mishnah suggested that. Dilution, uh, Pliny, Plato, and Homer all talk about diluting it and the ratios with which they were diluted. We gave those ratios a moment ago of 8 to 1, 3 to 1, 4 to 1, 10 to 1. Some even said 20 to 1. They would dilute it so that it was not intoxicating. Then storage was another method that was used. Cato the elder, this was about 200 years before Christ, claimed that must, that is why when you still have the grape and the stems all together and the juice is coming out, was stored in an amphoria, that's a jug, coated with pitch, could be stored 30 days in a water tank, and could be removed and kept as must for a whole year he said. That was before the time of Christ. There were at least four different methods it would be used. Now, Brother Kyle Pope, when I mentioned Pope, that's Brother Kyle Pope who preaches in uh, Texas. Quite a scholar. And Brother Pope gave an experiment. He was challenged on this point by a Christian who said, you're wrong about that. There-, there was no way of preserving uh, in Palestine conditions, there was no way of preserving so that it did not ferment. So he decided to try it himself. So he said, Here's what I did. So pay attention to this because this is how this, see how this thing played out. He said, What I did is I took 11 and a half pounds of black grapes and uh, tested two of the common methods of ancients talked about of filtering and boiling. So in May of the same year, he did six simple tests, tests from the grapes from the hand squeeze. He said, The first was pure grape juice. The second was juice filtered through a cloth. The third, juice was filtered and brought to a boil. And the remaining samples, were juice that was filtered, boiled, and then recut or reduced by a third and a fifth tenth of their original volume. He did this under the direction of a doctor who was a member of the church, a deacon in the church where he was, who was a professor at A&M University, did it under his direction. He is a professor of chemistry. And he said months later they opened it up and they used equipment supplied by another scientist who was a member of the church, and here was the results. I don't have time to go through all the details of that, but... He had unfiltered grape juice, then he had filtered grape juice that he stored and sealed, and filtered and boiled, and then filtered and cut by one-third, one-fifth, and one-tenth. And he sealed it in May of 2010. He opened it up in January of 2012, plenty of time to ferment. The unfiltered, when tested later, had 6% alcohol, but all of the filtered and the filtered and boiled and that which is cut, every bit had 0% alcohol and had been preserved. What does that tell me? What that tells me is that there were methods of preserving that. So this argument that says there was no way of preserving that, and if they drank wine at all, then they had to drink alcoholic content. That's just not so. That can be demonstrated in the the science lab even today, that you could take it, you could filter it, you can boil it, you can cut it, and then test it a year and a half later, and it still has no alcoholic content. It's possible. That's an argument that's fallacious. So what have we tried to do this morning? Address the question, is social drinking a sin? And then if it is, how do I know that? Well, I know it because it's drunkenness. I know it because it is strong drink. I know it because it's harmful. I know it because it is specifically condemned, 1 Peter 4, 3, because it has an evil influence upon others. And I know it's wrong because any argument that's been made to justify it just doesn't doesn't hold water. It just doesn't work. May the Lord help us to have a better understanding of the things that he forbids in the pages of the New Testament. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're a subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and sing?